Welcome to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And as usual, we are rereading our favorite series of novels, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron series. Ian, we are back in post-captain. Can you bring us up to date? I can, Mike, with great pleasure. Last time, in Chapter 3, Stephen, who we had learned properly for the first time, was the Admiralty's most esteemed advisor come intelligence agent, him, he had fallen badly for Diana Villiers. Jack, meanwhile, had told Sophie that he had to pay back the £11,000 that he didn't have in prize money, and Mrs. Williams decided to tell the entire world, well, at least the entire town, about this fall in Jack's fortunes and took her daughters away with her to Bath. Diana, their cousin, meanwhile, stayed on in Sussex and she invited Jack and Stephen separately to her bedroom. Hmm. A lot going on in the last chapter there, Mike. Meanwhile, First Lord of the Admiralty, Lord St. Vincent, was angered by Jack saying in an interview that I must have a ship. And this had turned out really badly for Jack. He'd had meanwhile learned that Sophie had apparently, to all reports, become engaged. Ah, triple whammy there for young Jack. Stephen had caught him going off to see Diana, had had a hard time leaving either one of them, and had taken Jack away, finally, to save him from the debtors that had shown up at at, uh, at Melbury. That was all last time, Mike. That was a big episode. I have a feeling that this one's going to be a big episode as well. Here in Chapter 4, we're going to change countries. We're going to meet an old friend of both Jack and Stephen. Jack's finally going to provide some insight on his relationship with Diana. Stephen's going to be endorsing the idea of living in the present. And we have one of our favourite, at least we hope it's your favourite, one of our favourite stories in the canon. That's right, Mike. We're going on a bear hunt. Oh, I can't wait, Ian. Going on a bear hunt. Nice. a big one. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Oh, well, we open the first chapter of Post Captain. I was a little disoriented in this one, a little disoriented as well. We opening, you know, we were getting ready to leave England, but we open in the port of Toulon and we hear about it being filled with four large French men of war, several Royal Navy ships that had been captured by the French. Everything's swarming with people getting these ships ready for sea. Captain Christy Pellier, we, we remember from Master and Commander, is closing a file of death sentences, one of many of these files. We're finding out it's alphabetical here. And he's talking about dinner. And this gentleman that we loved so much, he says he should have interrogated the Maltese earlier because if his dinner is really good, I quote, they may escape unshot. How Christy Pallier is lining people up and shooting them. His companion captain interrupts him because he doesn't want to hear all about guilt, Pontius Pilate, the odious side of interrogating suspected spies, a task quite unfit for officers. He just doesn't want to hear this speech again. And an orderly announces that two roast beefs, which I take to mean English seamen, are there to see Christy Pallier. 
And the orderly is reading off the official slip, says one claims to be a captain in their Navy and is born 1st of April, 1066 at Bedlam, London, father's profession monk, mother's nun, mother's maiden name, Borgia Lucrece. <laughs> the other pilgrim is Maturin Etienne, and he's about to continue and, and is cut off. But let me pause for a second here, Ian. <laughs> born on April Fool's Day in 1066, the year of William the Conqueror, and I, I couldn't find anything auspicious other than April Fool's on uh, the 1st of April that year. I'm trying to picture General Aubrey as a monk, or his son for that matter. And interestingly, this Lucretia Borgia, uh, she was the 1840 to 1519 illegitimate daughter of Pope Alexander the six as his mother. And she was quite the femme fatale. I mean, we got all kinds <laughs> of great stories about her. So Jack now Bedlam born in a mental institution. Let's see Jack in a mental institution. That could mm. wait, wait, no spoilers. No spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> we've got a few books to wait to see if that one's going to pay off now that we've planted it. Oh my gosh. Mike. I mean, it, it's one thing kind of for japes to sign yourself in the hotel guest book as Mickey mouse. But I think this is Stephen and Jack really going to town. Of course, they know that it's their old friend, Christy Pallier. Christy Pallier spots straight away who these two guests must be. He jumps up to get dressed to go and greet his friend. He says to Penoet, ah, now we're going to have a real dinner. And of course, we're going to speak in English. You won't mind speaking in English, will you? And uh, at this point, it seems that they have switched into English as he asks how he looks. And Penoet, testing out his English, replies, ah... So pimping as possible. And we get this nice joke about how they are presumably speaking bad f English just the same way that Aubrey speaks bad French here. So now that Christy Pallier and Penouette have uh, dusted off their, their Franglish, he's <laughs> there ready to, ready to welcome his friend, dear Aubrey, with a massive hug, with kisses on both cheeks, very Gallic, and he tells them how happy he is to see them. And this, this brings in Captain Penouette, who gets introduced and says, your servant, sir, in English, to Jack, who replies in bad French, domestique, monsieur, which means I am your domestic servant. You might even say you're a slave. Jack attempts what you could only describe as a doubling down on his French and says in bad French, I preserve, uh, I have uh, the most vivid remembrance of your fight at Ushant on board the Pong. I think he means the Pong, but never mind. In 24-9, uh, in he means in 1799. And Captain Penoet's face is blank. We get uh, an intervention from Christy Pallier, who says, ah, I have the liveliest recollection of his gallant action at Ushant in 99. And uh, we get the explanation that what Christy Pallier used was another kind of French. That is to say, <laughs> correct French. Warm smiles all around. Mike, and I know you and I have dug a little bit for this guy, Penoet. Where might his name come from? It's certainly the name of a place and a shipyard in Western France near Saint-Nazaire. There are penouettes in French naval history going back centuries. I think the Patrick O'Brien Muster book says that there was a Count Penouette, a Comte de Penouette, who was in the French Navy, emigrated to England in 1792, served in the British Army, and then went back to France at the, uh, the, the end of the Republic to serve as a post-captain in the new Bourbon Navy. So the idea of a Bourbon-sympathizing French Navy captain called Penouette seems to have 
a bit of a, an origin in history, which is great. Christy Pallier then says, how can you travel? He's talking to Jack and Stephen here. How can you travel in the extraordinary heat? And I insist that you come to dinner. And even, even though Jack is protesting that he's already booked a table, Pallier says, no, 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 you're in my country now. You're going to get the finest food at a favorite inn of mine just outside town. And Mike, we know it's always happy days in Patrick O'Brien when the characters sit down to dinner, right? Right, exactly. Well, at, at dinner, they do what naval officers always do. They kind of replay some battle with pieces of bread. And Christy Paillet is, is telling Pedouet about the Sophie trying to run from Admiral Lenoir's squadron. They have Aubrey right where they need him in the Sophie. They're about to fire on him, and he, boom, swings around, cuts right back through the line. Pedouet is is really thrilled by Aubrey's act. He calls it an exploit of thunder. And I, I can't for the life of me think what what <laughs> what French expression would be translated into bad English, an exploit of thunder, but says he almost wishes Jack had succeeded. Then he says, perhaps, this is Poet said, perhaps it's because the English in principle carry too much guns. And Jack says, well, you might be right, just like the French in principle carry far too many men, particularly soldiers. You remember the Phoebe and the Africaine. And I couldn't help, I thought, Ian, all right, so he's mentioning this particular thing, let's look into it. And I think perhaps less about the Phoebe and Africaine, which certainly was a case of too many too many people on the ship, but the Phoebe, which comes up so often in the canon, we heard it twice already in Master Commander, we're reminded that the Phoebe is the moon goddess in Roman mythology. So an alternate name for Artemis or Diana. Uh, and, and we know that Diana certainly has helped create a too many men, too many guns in principle problem <laughs> here in our text. I'm wondering if that's uh, O'Brien's thinking in, in recounting this particular <laughs> Too many guns in the saloon. <laughs> too many metaphors. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Great. So this very congenial dinner rolls on here, but as so often happens at a dinner, the naval, the strictly naval officers have one conversation running and the nerdy types, Stephen Maturin's company, have another conversation. So we have Stephen being joined by Dr. Ramis, the surgeon, the surgeon who was on board the Desai in the back in Master and Commander, along with Captain Penouet. Uh, they're exhausted, these French people, by following the English conversation, so they retire. We have Jack and Christy Pallier, who've already shifted quite a lot of drink, talking away, sharing their professional difficulties, Mike. Now, I, I'm struck by the stages in which these two unburden themselves to each other the, the, as, as they re reveal their confidences in each other. Beginning with Christy Pallier, who's talking about how difficult it is as a serving naval officer in this particular situation in the Napoleonic Republic, but in the Peace of Amiens. He says there's no real sense of seniority uh, in the French Navy. There is dirty, underhanded intrigue, political adventurers being promoted, and we get reminded that Jack already knows from talking to Christy Pallier's English cousins in Bath that Christy Pallier is only lukewarm as a Republican. He's got a bit of a Bourbon, a royalist streak to him. He certainly detests the vulgarity of Bonaparte. He detests the ignorance that Bonaparte has of the sea service. Um, he prefers a constitutional liberal monarchy. He's devoted in any case to France, but he's unhappy with who is currently in charge. Mike, that reminds me a little bit of 
Stephen Maturin's attitude to Napoleon as well. Well, I, I think you're exactly right. And interestingly, you know, O'Brien throws back and says, oh, Aubrey remembers how Christy Pallier could really empathize with Irish officers serving in the Royal Navy. I thought, oh boy, here we go. You know, what a, what a great throwback to Dylan and mastering commander. Well, Jack kind of goes into his same problems about being stuck in the promotion ladder. And Christy Pallier says, you know, don't worry, it's all going to work out. After the next parliamentary elections and the change in ministry, your merits will be recognized and you'll move up. But in France... I think he's saying, you know, you got Whigs and Tories. We've got Republicans, Royalists, Catholics, Freemasons, consulars, and soon-to-be imperial interests all competing with one another. And Christy Payet finally says, the only hope, the only solution is, uh, and his voice dies away. And Jack is thinking exactly the same thing and finishes it. He says, I suppose it would be wicked to pray for war. But oh, to be afloat. And Christy Paye <laughs> says, oh, very wicked, no doubt. So both of these guys are saying, I know exactly what we need. I know what we want. But hey, we can't say that. Yeah. I know. Well, never there, was there a better time to say, be careful what you wish for, my friend. Right. Right, right. So Christy Paye starts to point out the similarities here. Ah, it's admiralties. They're all the same. But he's interrupted by a messenger. And we get this characterization, this description by O'Brien of Christy Pallier as being a massive bear-like man, shorter than Jack, but much stouter across the shoulders. He has these very kind but wise brown eyes. He reads this note twice. He sobers up, comes back to the table with a full pot of coffee. And those kind brown eyes we read have become hard and piercing. And like, there's a lot that's hard and piercing about the rest of this chapter, actually. But let's get into it here. He tells Jack that the note he's just received is about a black-coated man with a telescope who was spotted looking at the French installations in Toulon that morning and had been speaking with the curious Barcelona merchant. And this sounds like a pretty grave accusation. Jack is very, very quick with his very straightforward, very sincere comeback. He says, oh, this, this must have been Stephen Maturin. He was out early with his telescope looking for birds, Jack has this big laugh saying he's surprised that Stephen didn't go up to the fort and ask to borrow some of the bigger optical instruments from the artillery to observe the birds. Oh, no, says Jack. He is the simplest fellow in the world. I give you my word of honour. Unspeakably learned, knows every bug and beetle in the universe and will have your leg off in an instant. But he should not be allowed out alone. And as for naval installations, he really can't tell port from starboard, a bonnet from a drabbler, although I've explained a thousand times, and he does try to apply himself. Poor fellow. And after this very sincere, and and clearly also therefore very believable, rebuttal of Stephen's spying, Jack goes on to talk, perhaps actually more incriminatingly, about how Stephen used to live near Barcelona, speaks the language like a native, and points out that they're actually headed on their way now, to Stephen's home in Catalonia after they've seen some special shrub on the island of Poquerol. And Jack is very tickled with the idea of poor good old Stephen being laid by the heels for a spy. And Mike, it's it's a touching and funny moment. The, the drumbeat, though, of Stephen's career as a spy, or at least an intelligence officer, starting to build up and get everybody's attention is, is beginning here. How do you think Christy Pallier is taking it? 
Well, well, it's interesting because, like you say, it is starting to begin, but you're almost wondering, or I was almost wondering, is it beginning and ending here? <laughs> right. like, whoa, whoa, Jack's got all these problems. Stephen is, you know, rescued him. Has Stephen kind of taken them out of the frying pan and into the fire here? But Christy Payet's eyes soften at Jack's transparent good faith. He can tell, well, Jack's absolutely telling me the truth. And he asks if Jack will, upon his honor, vouch for Maturin. And we know how you know, the honor had worked so beautifully between all of these guys in the prior novel. And Jack says, you know, my hand upon my heart. And then he says, you know, your people, Christy, must be pretty simple if they suspect somebody like Stephen Matron. And Christy Pellier says, yeah, some of them are, you know, are stupid, but that's not the worst of it. And he mentions all these other French services who are looking for people and that there are many other services on land, many of them no wiser than his worst men. So I think he's trying to say, look, let me tell you, this is a really paranoid atmosphere right now. We're hunting people down high and low, and you're not going to be dealing with me if this comes up again here. In a low, significant voice, Christy Pallier says, the text reads, and listen, my dear Aubrey, it might be just as well if you did not cross to Pocarole, but pressed on to Spain. Jack says, you mean because of the heat? And Christy Pallier shrugs and says, if you like, I-, I will say no more about it. I'm thinking, Jack, Jack, you missed the voice there, buddy. He's yes. <laughs> trying to tell you something. Pay attention. Ah, dear. So this conversation's yielding a lot of sensitive information here. And I, I, I like the fact that we've talked about spying and war before we finally get around to talking about love. <laughs> so what what the next step up the, uh, the the truth and consequences ladder is talking about what's happening in Jack's love life. And Christy Pallier facilitates this a bit. He orders another bottle of wine and he talks about Jack's visit that he'd made to go and see uh, the Frenchman's cousins in Bath. And Christy Pallier is starting to pitch Jack on the merits of the cousin of his who's a wonderful cook and thinking maybe he could fix them up when Jack says oh and uh, I I forgot to tell you why it was that I was in Bath very confidentially he goes on I'm in this wretched situation and he describes to Christy Pallier how he hadn't stopped thinking about it until this wonderful dinner that he'd had this evening he nearly he said he nearly had had an understanding with a neighboring girl in Sussex and after his bad time in court over the neutrals her mother, he's meaning Mrs. Williams, no longer approved of the connection and had taken the girls away to Bath. Jack says that he had been in Bath on this particular occasion to visit Sophie, but, to use his phrase, could never come to close quarters because she, Sophie, didn't like the attention that Jack had paid to her cousin. Mm. And n- now we get to learn a bit about what's been going on between Jack and Diana, as if we didn't already know from the, the horse outside the tower in the previous chapter. Christy Pallier has got a bit of a different set of uh, standards and morals, I think, when it comes to affairs of the heart. He says, well, was this an innocent attention? Uh, He's talking about the attention to Diana. Maybe, but it could have been misinterpreted. Yes, Jack, whatever you say. The cousin, he says, is astonishingly lovely. A splendid dash and courage. Absolutely sounds like Diana. And while Jack was eating his heart out, in between the Admiralty and the money lenders, 
he had heard that his girl, he's meaning Sophie, had received this offer of marriage. Everyone said it was a settled thing. And then this cousin, Diana, was so kind, sympathetic and beautiful that he... Ah. And then he pauses and says, well, you understand me. Mm. So we, we get, if not the first indication, the first proper acknowledgement from Jack that he has kind of played the field a little bit here and he's gone from the uncertain situation with Sophie, who he's very, very deeply attached to, to this rather more racy short-term association with Diana. And uh, that's not the end of the story. No, no. Jack goes on to say, and just when things are going great with the cousin, the cousin pulled him up and asked who in the devil he thought he was. He notes this was after he'd lost all his money. And Jack says he didn't know what to say to her, especially since he just started to make out that this cousin and Jack's best friend, we're thinking Stephen, you know, Matron, might be attached. He says it was something he really wasn't sure of, but when they parted England, it looked more certain. So I'm thinking, ah, so Jack really was missing this guy. So in the meantime, he says the cousin was charming to him again, and he was hooked. He couldn't eat or sleep. And he committed himself pretty fully to her, partly out of the slight to his pride from this yeah. girl. So, you know, from his girl, uh, he's, you know, he's kind of wounded. Sophie's gotten engaged. Here's this direct assault that Stephen Matron had talked about in an earlier chapter. And then he says he gets a letter from his girl to him. <laughs> Again, I love how this is all getting played out a little bit remotely, a little bit a second hand. And it's funny, we've been talking about this, how the the general tone of lots of this part of the story is quite indirect, it's quite ambiguous. But in this very confessional moment with Christy Pallier, Jack is laying it out here. He had been attached to Sophie. That seemed like it was on the rocks. He had gone in for this liaison with Diana. And Christy Pallier can't quite figure this out. He says, I'm shocked that you that she wrote to Jack directly and says, well, was this a, a secret love affair? Were you having some kind of an intrigue with Sophie? And he says, no, the relationship with the girl had been innocent, hardly so much as a kiss. She had only written to tell him the thing about the marriage that this proposal from the other guy was so much goddamn stuff, in Aubrey's phrase. He got the letter the day he left for the country, and Christy Pauillet says, well, then everything is perfect. This sounds like a confession, an avowal of true love from the serious wrong woman. What the hell are you worried about here? And Jack is looking really wretched, and Christy Pallier thinks he's a bit of a, he calls him a muff, a bit of a wuss, a pussy, in other words. He says, well, you've got two women at once. Ah, no biggie, you know, welcome to France. But looking into his face, he can really see the wound and he can feel the wound in his heart for Jack and the situation that he's in. And like a good friend, Christy Pallier was there to comfort him, right? Yeah, yeah. Christy Pallier pats Jack on the arm. And Jack explains that in honor, he's pretty much committed to the cousin, although he doesn't have anything like the same kind of feeling for her as he does for his girl, who we know to be Sophie. And then Jack adds, and to say nothing of my friend. 
meaning Stephen Matron. So yeah. I, I was thinking this kind of after the fact explanation there, O'Brien lets us a little bit into the mind of Jack and what he was perceiving all this time. It goes a long way to help us understand Jack's behavior towards Diana and towards Stephen and towards Sophie. This isn't Jack blindly following his libido. Part of my, you know, okay, yeah. we had Mrs. Hart last. No, it's looking like Jack really wants to do the right thing by both women. He was absolutely committed to Sophie. He was devastated by the news. He was defenseless, as Stephen had said he would be, against a direct attack by Diana. And he did not realize that Stephen and Diana were more than friends. So I think when he was he was being deceptive to Stephen, but as Stephen said, you know, back earlier, he thought Jack was being deceptive to him because he didn't want to look like he was kind of playing around on Sophie and thought Matron would judge him badly for that. Not that he thought Matron and Diana were involved. So this O'Brien, who's so subtle yeah. and, and, and beautifully writes these things so that we can be thinking and asking the questions and, and a, a shout out to uh, Steve Morris, our good friend from Cinephiles, because he's been prodding us a little bit with, okay, guys, you're going to get to these big questions about, you know, these relationships here. Yeah, we're, we're getting into this as O'Brien lets us in a little bit. We just love this stuff. And thank you, Steve, for, uh, for prompting us to dig a little deeper. I think absolutely. And two, two big questions on our mind. Are, are Jack and Diana having it away, to, to, to use the 1960s English expression? Yeah, absolutely. If you want to be forensic, you can look in the text and you can see that that, that thing about being a committed in honor to Diana says to me that, you know, he's, he's slept with Diana. I think I knew that in my heart from the moment that Stephen encountered the the horse tied up in the previous chapter. And I think this conversation is explaining what are the consequences of all of that for Jack. Now, you're right, Mike, he's not just following his libido, but I do think he's a bit of a big kid. He's yes. kind of st stumbling around, maybe not like a teenager, but like a guy in his early 20s who's trying to be simultaneously the uh, the... Um, God's gift to women sexually and also to be sentimental and honorable about all of his attachments to women. And that's not going to work out. <laughs> yeah. I don't resemble that remark at all. <laughs> <laughs> if I can think back that far. Oh, goodness me. Oh, my. Now, there's, there's a whole other question of Stephen and Diana. Where, what emotional, romantic, physical status is, is going on in their relationship. And I've got to say, I, I, I don't know. I'll, I might come back to the question, but for now, I have a horrible feeling there's there's just torture for Stephen in this and he hasn't been getting much pleasure at all. But let's, let's keep the question open. Well, and, and I wonder, Ian, at the close of the last chapter, Diana too, while yeah. she seems to be in some cases, you know, absolutely toying with these guys, it sounded like she was a bit desperate at the end and it yeah. wasn't for Jack, it was for Stephen. So, yeah. you know, I am loving how... O'Brien makes us think. He is not spelling this out. This is no bodice ripper. This is no, oh, let me spell it out for you. One, two, three. We really do have to think. And as Steve says, we have to ask these questions and speculate a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Very good. I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to this because there's more, I think, for us to uncover in the chapter here. Meanwhile, we said that Stephen had closeted himself away with Dr. Ramis. So the point of view quite quickly shifts over to Stephen and Dr. Ramis. And echoing in the back of our minds, we've got those words between Jack and Christy Pallier about how 
Stephen is as innocent as the day is long and would never dream of spying and he doesn't know anything about the world and he was just looking at birds and beetles. Here is Stephen and Dr. Ramis. Of course, they have a big herbal encyclopedia open in front of them, but they also have a detailed map, a map of the Spanish defences of Port Mahon. Dr. Ramis is a native of Minorca, which is part of the province of Catalonia. He had just returned from there with several documents for Stephen. He is Stephen's most important contact with the Catalan autonomists. They read the papers, they commit them to memory, burn them, and crush the black ashes in the fireplace. And what else is crushed here? I, I think that the, the apparent truth in Jack's mind of Stephen being completely innocent is crushed. And I wonder whether their friendship is crushed because it's so plain to us what's not plain to Jack yet, which is that Stephen is not the innocent guy that his best friend thinks he is. He is becoming, has become a spy for the uh, for the British uh, naval authorities. And between the two of them, they move on to talking about humanity at large. Stephen wants to run a developing idea past Dr. Ramis. Uh, he's got his theory about man's general unfitness for life as it is lived. And Stephen asserts that maybe sailors who live half their lives floating and remote on a ship, sailors may be the most unsuited for living life as it should be lived, more than men of any other calling, because, as Stephen says, the sailor at sea in his proper element lives in the present. There is nothing he can do about the past at all. And having regard to the uncertainty of the omnipotent ocean and the weather, very little about the future. And he uses this idea about sailors to account for their improvidence, their lack of foresight, the fact that they spend their money very unwisely, they're very kind of thoughtless and careless. The officers try to tell them what to do, try to protect them against this vast series of contingencies coming in the future. But it's not in the sailor's instinct at the base level to think like that. Sailors, he says, will provide against a storm tomorrow or even in a fortnight's time. But for them, the remoter possibilities are academic, unreal. They live in the present. And Mike, I, I like now how Stephen's going to go on and, and, and pick this up and speculate perhaps unwisely about how this relates to other kinds of disorders of the mind. You're right, Ian, that you know, Steve does kind of talk about the consequences. He says there's this range of disorders that arise in the mind that for people anywhere in a merely idle mind, false pregnancies, hysterias, palpitations, dyspepsias, eczematious affection, some forms of impotence, and many more. These, he says, are not found on board ships at sea. However, he says in the text writes, if you put the honest tar ashore, they're compelled to live not in the present, but in the future with reference to futurity, all joys, benefits, prosperities to be hoped for, look forward to, the subject of anxious thought directed towards next month, next year, nay, the next generation. No slops provided by the purser, no food perpetually served out at stated intervals. And what do we find? You know, Stephen asks, what are the consequences? Pox, drunkenness, a bestial dissolution of all moral principle, gross overeating, the liver ruined in 10 days' time. 
Stephen goes on saying that on land, they have anxiety, hypochondria, displacency, melancholia, cost of delicate stomachs. The ills of the city merchant increased tenfold. Stephen says, okay, that's the theory. Case in point, he says, I had a who was in perfect health. Uh, he you know, he compares him to the daughter of, of you know, the, the, the god of, of medicine here, who was always known to be in perfect health. But he says, and the text reads, a short time on land with household cares, matrimonial fancies, always in the future. With that, he loses 10 pounds, retains urine, has black, compact, meager stools, and an obstinate eczema. Now, we're ever wondering how much Stephen and Jack share with each other. That's it. Boy. Um, and Ian, you pointed out that I think Stephen may have missed something here, right? Yeah. He's listing this long litany of specious or fictitious or psychosomatic disorders that affect people when they're on land. And I think I think he's missed one that's affected both Jack and Stephen, which is love. And I think he's kind of Maybe in my mind, he's lumping love together with all these other kind of weird complaints as a as a as a tricky physiological consequence of having too much time on your hands and indulging in too much abstract thought. Anyway, I think he's got you know the the, the worries of humans in society pretty much down to a T here. Now, Doctor Ramis wonders whether this is all purely the effect of having, as he calls it, solid earth between the subject's feet. Is, that, is is this just to do with being at sea versus being on land? And, Mike, that, that's a good question. It's a hypothesis that we're going to test all the way through the 20 books of the canon. And he comes back then to the subject of weight loss. And he turns the conversation around to Stephen. Speaking as a physician, he says, you've lost weight. You're thin, cadaverous. You have ill breath, sparse hair. You're belching frequently. You have dim, hollow eyes. These, he says, are not accounted for merely by Stephen's use of tobacco and laudanum which, by the way, is the thing that started to rear its head in this book in these most recent two chapters. Ramis says, well, he, he knows all of this about Stephen's outward appearance. There's part of the physiological picture that he hasn't got yet. So he says, I should very much like to see your excrement. <laughs> Stephen's <laughs> totally fine with that. Of course you shall. Uh, reminds him then to send his tincture of laudanum. Like any good addict, he says, yeah, yeah I've got a plan for stopping. I'm going to stop using it when I get home to the reader, but right now I have needs. Rama says he'll send it and adds that he might send Stephen a note of the very first importance in code three tonight. He won't know for three hours. He goes back into doctor mode as he checks Stephen's pulse before he leaves. And, and Mike, besides the laudanum reference here, it's interesting that he's mentioned the use of tobacco. We've had very, very little to say about Stephen using tobacco, but plenty about sailors using tobacco. I, I wonder what was on Patrick O'Brien's mind. Well, you know, it's fascinating because in the full text, Ramis says, you know, about tobacco, an obnoxious substance that should be prohibited by government. And I thought, wow, that's quite the thought for we're in the early 1800s here. Interesting, yeah. O'Brien was writing this dialogue in 1971, the year the UK and tobacco companies agreed to health warnings on cigarette packages. Now, oh. O'Brien's not in the UK. He's in the U EU, which only followed the UK a number of years later. Yeah, let's not even talk about the US. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's really fascinating, isn't it? it this was so social and 
kind of consumer history being written at the time that O'Brien was sitting, building this particular work of fiction. Now, Stephen ponders on this cryptic remark about sending a note in, uh, in Code 3, and he thinks kind of regretfully about the way he has to deal sometimes with plain mercenary agents, agents in the intelligence community who are only loyal to themselves and their purses. And he's thinking about what does he plays Ramis in this kind of spectrum of intelligence operatives. He says he has the complexities of the entirely honest men, their sudden reticences, the interplay of conflicting loyalties, the personal sense of honour. And thinking about that makes him feel old and tired. And I'm pretty sure that Stephen sees himself on the same plane as Ramis, being one of the honest as opposed to the mercenary men involved in spying. He's an intelligence agent, just like Ramis is, because of a cause, because of some personal morality, a sense of what's right and how the world should be. And as Ramis is attempting to point out, Stephen's feeling of being tired isn't from having to deal with honest men any more than he or Jack's physical deteriorations are simply due to their being a sailor ashore or failing to live in the present. He's talking about how the things that we're obsessed with and weighed down by and the complexities and abstractions in our heads and how we use them and respond to them is really what's going on in the differences between the, the health of people. It's not just about H2O or not H2O. Now, Stephen talks about this idea that he has now as a fetus of a thought, which is kind of a, a grim way of talking about a thought as being like an unborn child. He has a hypothesis. And this hypothesis in his mind maybe absolves Jack of some of the guilt and responsibility for his actions towards Diana and Sophie and their effect upon Stephen. Now, Diana doesn't qualify for this potential excuse, this uh, absolving power of this hypothesis that Stephen has. Um, so he's hypothesized other extenuating factors for Diana, and he acknowledges his own weaknesses as contributing factors to the way she's been behaving. So Stephen can't help himself. He can't help reaching for the laudanum. And he can't help philosophizing about the morals and the ethics and the incentives of other people. Well, Jack wakes up when Stephen finally you know, leaves Ramos and comes home and, and quickly starts laughing, telling Stephen he was almost taken up for a spy that morning. And the text says Stephen stops and stands motionless. So fascinating to me that uh, clearly Jack does not know that Stephen's in intelligence work. Uh, and it appears that Stephen doesn't want him to know about his intelligent activities here. And I'm thinking about Jack and Jack's character. Probably a good thing Jack didn't know earlier when Christy Payet uh, talked to him. Jack yeah. says he assured Christy Payet that Stephen was only looking for double-headed eagles. I think this is Jack trying to make a little bit of a joke. And he says, Christy Pallier made an odd remark that if he were in their shoes, he would push on for Spain and not head off to the island. You know, I was thinking to myself, this double-headed eagles, this might be a better joke than, than Jack realizes. Napoleon, of course, adopted the single-headed French imperial eagle, copying the Roman legion's eagle standard, you know, carry the Grand Army's regimental colors. You know, when, when the Bourbons were restored for a while, they got rid of all the eagles when the 100 days Napoleon brings back the eagles. And as we see with Dr. Ramos, Stephen was indeed 
looking for and working with what we might call double-headed eagles. So uh-huh. if Napoleon has the single, maybe he wants the ones that are also, I don't know. I think Jack would have loved the pun if only he realized what was going <laughs> on. Well, it's certainly a pun that gave some enjoyment to Patrick O'Brien, and I guess by extension to us as well. Right. <sighs> now, Stephen says he's not surprised at this perception or this ignorance, if you like. He doesn't believe that Christy Pallier would cross the street to see Euphorbia Prestans, which we'll come to in a second, let alone cross an arm of the sea to see an obscure bird species. So he tells Jack to roll over and go back to sleep. They have a long day coming tomorrow. We know even better than they do just how long the day might be. Right Now, Euphorbia Prestans, of course, is a an interesting plant species. It's not dropped in there by coincidence. Uh, it's a kind of poinsettia, and euphorbia sap is always poisonous. It can cause mild to highly acute poisoning. It's often uh, an irritant and often used as a purgative. So this is yet another example in the canon of a plant with some herbal powers that are also toxic when you use them to excess. So that's euphorbia prestans taken care of, Mike. Jack Aubrey's gone back to sleep, but the night is not over. No, no. Some hours later, Jack wakes to this scratching at the door, and he sees Stephen receive a bottle and a folded note. He watches as Stephen opens the note, deciphers it, burns both scraps of paper in the candle flame, and without turning around says, Jack, you are awake, I believe. So I'm I'm thinking, (laughs) wow, wow, this is pretty impressive. Stephen is, again... You know, he's, he's got eyes in the back of his head here. He walks over and whispers to Jack not to call out. When Jack agrees, he tells Jack war will be declared tomorrow and Bonaparte is seizing all British subjects. And now we understand Christy Paillet's advice, his warning about all these agencies looking for suspicious people. It's as if he was hollering, don't head east to see your plant head west to get to Spain and get the heck out of France now. Right. Wow. And uh, Dr. Ramis as well. If there was any doubt that Dr. Ramis was involved in high spying, then that's all been taken care of right away. Mike, it's been an incredibly intense first half to this chapter. Lots of confidences and new twists and lots of new jeopardy as well for our characters. I think we need to go and take a little glass of something to calm the nerves and maybe come back after a short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. Uh, we hope you managed to calm your nerves a little bit at the break. A quick parish notice, if that's okay, Mike. A week or two ago, we were talking about the episode of the Battle of St. Vincent and Nelson's conduct as commander of the vessel HMS Captain. Now, we've mentioned this on our social media, so I wanted to mention it also in an episode. Uh, one of our listeners, who's also a long-term Patrick O'Brien fan, Mark Iliff. Hello, Mark, if you're listening. Has written a book, has self-published a book called... Nelson confides, and if you'd like to read a tale in and about and before and around and after the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, set in the company of Nelson, written by somebody who's very, very obviously a Patrick O'Brien fan and 
doing doing a great job of bringing the spirit of Patrick O'Brien into a different setting. I think you really, really might like it. The author, once again, is Mark Eilif. The book's called Nelson Confides. Hello, Mark. Thank you for your patience while we've been reading the book. We hope it's all going swimmingly well. Anyhow, Mike, we're not so much thinking about the Battle of St. Vincent right now. We're thinking about the beginning of the First Napoleonic War. War is declared and that Stephen and Jack have got no business being at large in France. But this next part of the chapter seems to open with no sign of them. Well, the story resumes talking about a convoy of English prisoners. So we've clearly advanced some days. They're seamen, officers, civilians, all rounded up by the French, and they're moving through this town of Carcassonne, which is days west of Toulon. And for those of you who have followed ship's journeys on Tom Horn's wonderful Google mapping website, you can follow this overland journey as well on the Patrick O'Brien mapping project at cannonade.net. Tom, thanks for your years of working, putting this thing together. Well, at first, these prisoners, O'Brien is telling us they're too hot and tired to notice this bear and its leader not far from them. But after the townspeople all come out and sell them some food and drink, a sailor who's refreshed says, oh, what oh the bear? Can he dance, mate? <laughs> and the bear leader, who the text describes as an ill-looking brute with a patch over one eye, takes no notice. Well, the sailor and his friends walk over, and some of the friends start throwing stones at the bear to wake it up. The sailor, George is his name, tells them to stop throwing the stones and to remember Elisha. There's nothing so unlucky as teasing a bear. Well, uh, you know, I, I was like, wait, Elisha and a bear? So I, I, I had to dig in. Elisha, a name near and dear to my heart. It's actually my one of my grandmother's names. And it was going to be my one of my daughter's middle names. But my grandmother said, you don't want a name like Elisha. Name her Elizabeth. But Elisha is an Old Testament prophet in Second Kings, uh, the second chapter of the 23rd verse. I'll, I'll read the uh, the NIV translation here. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel, and he was walking along the road. Some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse upon them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. So, you know, we we always love the love and grace of uh, of of biblical stories. (laughs) Maybe maybe a good warning to these sailors to say, yeah, you don't want to be throwing stones at this this hot and tired bear over here, my friends. No. And some of us and if if you're reading this for the first time and I remember reading this for the first time, I'm still going the bear. Huh? Right. What's what's going on with the bear here? And we, we get a little bit of focus now on the bear, the bear's own kind of behavior and apparent mood. The bear looks hot. It's prostrate on this one small patch of grass. Crews from all these other ships have gathered to see it dance. And the bear leader, this kind of rather unprepossessing chap, tells them it's indisposed and can only perform at night. Im have airy coat, mister. Im ate up old goat for im dinner. Im bellyache. And this sailor by the name of George tells them that none of them would want to dance in a great fur pelisse in the sun. Hold that thought. However, there's an English sea officer nearby who wants to impress his lady. He speaks to the police sergeant who calls the bear leader over 
and looks at his Spanish passport. And Mike, we start to get a clue about the identity of the bear leader here. Uh, he asks for his uh, his name, his birthplace, and his profession. His profession is profession is bear leader. Uh, his birthplace is Lerida in Catalonia, and his name is Juan Margal. And I think that this is a slight misspelling of uh, the name of somebody called Juan Maragal, who was a famous but late nineteenth century Catalan poet and journalist. His name is going to crop up attached to another character later in the canon. So, Juan Maragall, there you go. Another clue as to who this might be. The bear leader is speaking, we learn, with the cringing humility of the poor. The policeman asks for proof. He wants to see the bear dance. The bear leader says, don't expect too much from Flora, for that's the bear's name. He whispers in the policeman's ear, probably something about Flora's current female problem. Hmm. The policeman understands and says, well, okay, perhaps then just, just a few steps to satisfy my conscience. The bear leader drags poor old Flora up by her chain, beats her until the dust flies from her shaggy side and she shuffles forward. He pulls a pipe and plays with one hand, holding the chain with the other. And the sailors watching on here are really upset with the cruelty. They're upset at the sight of this great big ring in the bear's nose. The bear staggers a few steps, crosses its arms and sits down again. A trumpet sounds. The sergeant tells the prisoners that it's time to move out. The bear leader runs up and down the line with, I love this line, uh, with avid and shameless persistent busyness, telling everyone to remember the bear and collecting a few coins. Now, Mike, th this all sounds like a bit of sort of harmless but medieval sounding entertainment. But as the scene turns to dusk, I think we're going to learn a little bit more about the connection between the bear and the bear leader. Yeah, I'm with you, Ian. I remember reading this the first time going, what's going on here? This is another one of those Patrick O'Brien animal stories we're supposed to get something out of. But yeah. it, it, he goes on saying that evening in the silence, everybody, everybody's gone, including the village kids who've been dropping clods of earth down from the battlements down onto the bear. And the bear leader is sitting there counting the coins. And he's saying, you know, how much it is and what country they're from. And then... We hear this line, when one sea officer is to be roasted, there is always another at hand to turn the spit. It's an old service proverb, says the bear. And I remember <laughs> going, what? Sa wait, says the bear. Patrick O'Brien's just headed into magical realism here. Oh, my gosh. And then you know, the bear goes on to say, I hope one day that that sea officer with the lady friend is under my command and I'll make him dance a hornpipe. Ooh, such a hornpipe. <laughs> and then the bear continues, Stephen, prop my jaws open a little more. I think I'll die in five minutes if you don't. And I think it's like, what? 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 <laughs> and Stephen says, no, 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 you know, we got to run. We've got to get to Kuzia by dawn. And so, I mean, I, I love getting to that bear's first speaking line. I'll tell you what, O'Brien had me completely the first time around. <laughs> <laughs> So, Mike, sh shall we dig into here the, the the perception that readers have of the bear story? Because I, I think it's one of those kind of room-splitting moments. <laughs> there are some, and I think I was in this kind of population when we were first reading a couple of years ago at the beginning of the podcast. I was going, yeah, this is just a stretch, and I, I find it hard. There are people in the Patrick O'Brien fandom community who will say in messages that we read online, 
I, I nearly closed the book and gave up at this point because the bear story is so hard to believe. And I, to, to borrow your phrase from a minute ago, Mike, I was I was okay with the idea of this as just a bit of ma- magical realism. You know, there, there is a world in which people traveling around in the south of France believe that a human in a bear costume really is a bear. But but this this wouldn't be Patrick O'Brien if there wasn't another spin to the coin here. No, you know, and it, it's funny. You know, I I had read in the past on you know one of the Facebook groups, and I couldn't remember whether it's the Patrick O'Brien Appreciation Society or the Aubrey Matron group. And I thought somebody posted something about this, and so working on some show notes last night, I kind of posted last minute ago. Hey, does anybody remember this? And God bless them, as always. Everybody jumped in, and thanks to David Paylor and Peter Leach. We've got some stories from an Irish newspaper about, in fact, an Irish priest who, wanting to get out of Ireland in the early 1700s, had become a priest, gone to live in France, walked all over the place, like our heroes are doing here. And at one of the places near where we are here, he uh, actually recounts having seen this bear leader with a bear that was doing more and more kind of incredible tricks, you know, could kind of point at the clock or could nod at people who were waving at them, you know, doing all sorts of things and that people were coming from villages far around. And because there was more and more demand for this bear to perform, this bear leader was poking him with a sharp stick until the guy, I say the guy, the bear finally calls out, but he calls out in Irish, one word. Well, nobody else there recognizes it. It just sounds like the bear is speaking, but in this some tongue. Well, this guy, the priest who's from Ireland, calls back in Irish and the bear answers him. So finally, the priest gets the mayor and brings him down. And they discover that this Irishman had been trying to get out of Ireland had had a boat or whatever had turned over. He'd washed up ashore. This guy in France had put him to work in the bear suit, kind of going town to town and doing these amazing tricks and collecting money. So this is, again, it's a kind of mid-1700s, gray tale. It's Ireland. Yeah. It's a French priest It's you know who's Irish. And I think right down Patrick O'Brien's alley. Now, Mike, Mike Taylor sent us another link of something he had actually seen, which is a village in that area that has this long-running historically-based celebration where men dress as bears annually. And so we can, you know, maybe post both of these on our socials. So yes, yes, this is not fully imagined. It's not perhaps as ludicrous as it seems. And there's certainly, there are myths and traditions in many cultures around the world about men disguised as bears doing things. And we know that entertaining bears were certainly a thing around these times, you know, and, and yeah. leading up to this. So I know that, boy, people are really like you say, they either love it or they hate it. But as, as I think we'll talk a little bit later, we see some other uses that O'Brien's making of this, which, you know, endears me to it even more. Although I, I've got to admit, I, I, think it's, I think it's a fun story. And I, <laughs> I, and I was a little bit shocked about how vehemently some people thought it's how you know, ludicrous. And like you said, I almost stopped reading the whole thing right there. So, hey, <laughs> this is O'Brien, boy. He writes so that we all do have our own opinions. And it's one of the things I love about that. 
it's great it's great and of course he had dropped in a couple of little tiny bits of yes. what you might call i don't know bear foreshadowing christy palier is described as right. being a bear-like man we've had this just very very gently dripped into our ears uh, so that by the time it comes here we're ready for it now we now know of course that the bear is Jack Aubrey in costume and that the bear leader is Stephen. So we carry on the story with these two men on this long trek. And remember, they're headed into Catalonia, into Spain, to get to Stephen's old ancestral property, to safety, if they can just get there without getting caught, without getting uh, picked up by the French authorities. This is not an easy journey. It's pretty grim, actually. It's a real slog to get across this mountainous terrain. They're climbing over the French side of the Pyrenees. They're zigzagging to avoid large towns, to avoid the dangerous coast zone. Stephen is leading Jack, who can't see past his muzzle and has to breathe out of a hole. Um, The hole is covered with this spiked collar when people are around. Fools, local fools, are running after them, asking questions about the bear. Every hamlet has got swarms of dogs that come out biting at the heels of the bear. And in the mountains, they overhear people telling stories about how bears get killed by humans around these parts. So besides being a grim physical experience for Jack, they're, and besides being effectively chased by French intelligence, they're also in an environment where they could quite easily be taken up as an actual bear and an actual bear leader and just killed for the fun of it. And Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm already wishing for Jack and Stephen that this could be over, but it's not yet. No, no, no. Like you say, and we're, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a really arduous journey. Well, one day O'Brien tells us about Stephen leaving Jack in the woods. He wants to go into town to try to get some news. I want to find out what's happening here. Jack is lying there in the cool ferns and he feels the ants, ticks and other insects invading him. He smells his own stink and the stench of this bearskin, which had been preserved in turpentine. But O'Brien tells us that, you know, as a six-foot yellow-haired Englishman, Jack would have stood out like a church steeple in France. So with all these people chasing domestic and foreign fugitives, they had to do something. O'Brien writes, The torment of the ill-fitting chafing hide, the incessantly repeated small rasping wounds, the ooze of blood, the flayed soles of his feet attached to the fur by court plaster— The heat, the suffocation, the vile uncleanliness had reached what he had thought the unendurable point 10 days, 200 miles ago. So as you say, Ian, this was was not pretty. It really wasn't. It's uh, it's now turned into one of those journeys of endurance. And Jack, remember, we're only two books into the canon here, and it was a bit of a, a wing and a prayer that the second book got written at all. So here's Jack wondering if they'll ever succeed. And by the way, we don't know whether either of these two characters is going to make it all the way through this story. Jack had never doubted that, barring some act of God or strange misfortune, as long as he did his part, he and Stephen would not pass the rest of the war as prisoners. He was confident that somehow they'd avoid being cut off, cut off from the possibility of service, promotion of a lucky cruise, cut off from Sophia cut off indeed from Diana. Mm. So that confidence is comforting to him. And meanwhile, he knows that it's going to be a long war, but that also brings to mind the fact that they're in the vicinity of Spain. And there are some good reasons why Spain 
despite the treaty obligations that they have to Britain, might eventually, or even sooner, come in on the side of France. It may even be that at this stage Spain has already declared for France, in which case the border might be closed and Stephen's refuge might be lost to them. And we, we don't get very much introspection in these stories from Jack, do we, Mike? But like, that's Jack really thinking hard about the situation that he's in here. Yeah, it is nice because, as you say, and we don't get that much, we're getting a lot of it here because Jack's kind of left to his own devices in this bear suit. Jack's thinking that he's finding Stephen strangely reticent, you know, that Stephen is not revealing his thoughts and feelings lately. And that he thought, he, Jack thought, that he knew Stephen through and through back in what O'Brien writes as the old, uncomplicated days. And that at that time, Jack loved all he knew. But now there were new depths, an underlying hard ruthlessness, an unexpected matron, and Jack was quite out of his depth. The more Jack thought about Stephen going on ahead with his Spanish passport, the more, the text says, thoughts he dare not formulate came welling up, an ugly swarm. Jack wonders if he's lost his courage, sweated it all out, and he thinks through about the many conversations he and Stephen have had about courage and ultimately about the supreme courage of indifference. Wow. And not for the first and not for the last time in this chapter, Jack is realizing not only that there's more to Stephen than he first realized, like it's not, I don't think it's just a simple matter that Jack was underestimating Stephen. He has seen Stephen as pretty uniformly a, a, a force for good verging on harmless. But now he's realizing that Stephen could be to some people in some situations and even to him, the exact opposite. And it's so subtle. I I had never really picked up quite how important this was as a turning point in Jack's perception of his friend Stephen. But it's superbly done, and it's going to be super important for what happens in the rest of the book. So here they are out on the trail in the stinking hot weather, and they start to encounter humanity. Remember, a few words or sentences ago, Jack was reflecting on what could happen if we suddenly get taken up and Spain are in the war on the French side. And it's a little girl that brings that fear to reality. Jack hears this little girl roaring out as she hunts mushrooms in the forest. She's calling out, trying to find her friend. And as she turns towards him, he, Jack, closes his eyes so that she won't sense the savage glare. She won't get that feeling of being looked at by the bear. His mind, says O'Brien, was now all alive. No trace of indifference now, but a passionate desire to succeed in this immediate step to carry the whole undertaking through, come hell or high water. The supreme courage of indifference, like we said a minute ago. He thinks that, hmm, whatever he does, if he happens to frighten this little girl, then she might bring a band of armed peasants, and then maybe if he slips away, he'll lose Stephen. All their papers are sewed inside the bearskin. So Stephen's counting on Jack as well, and counting on them staying together. These possibilities race through Jack's mind until he hears Stephen tell this girl not to call out. He says she'll spoil her voice. And then he tells her which mushrooms are safe to eat. And and, and by the way, Mike, that Stephen mentions the satanic bolitas, which you can dig into yourselves, listeners, if you want to find another Easter egg about something mildly horrific 
Google, what's the satanic bolitas? Even though you'll also discover that it wasn't actually named in science until 1831. <laughs> anyway, I hope it's a touching and I hope it's a nice moment that Stephen's in contact with a child. Yeah. So let's yeah. Let's, let's see what happens here. Ah, well, Stephen asked her if she's seen his bear, saying he'd left him, the bear, in the woods to rest. She asked the bear's name. He says it's Flora, and he calls out Flora's name. And the little girl points out that Stephen had called the bear him just a moment ago. And I'm thinking, oh, <laughs> uh oh. Uh, then, you know, Flora shows herself, and the girl is completely taken aback by the size of this bear, but finally calms down. And then, as kids will do, calls her friend to come and see her bear. So this is my bear. And, and then we move on to the kids leaving, Stephen sort of waving goodbye. And when they're alone, Stephen tells Jack that Spain has not declared war, but that the Mediterranean ports are all closed to English ships. So that two of them, after they rested Stevens, are going to have to go down to Gibraltar. You know, they want to get out of this place here. The village he says, is filled with police and soldiers who have already arrested one English agent. Stephen knows of and thinks he can remember another way they can go down through the frontier. If they slip across the road after dusk, if he can remember the pathway, this small path, they can be there at dawn. Wow. And Mike, this is turned into an adventure story. You and I were talking about this before. This whole passage with Stephen and Jack and trying to cross the border, it reminds me of Hemingway. You know, it reminds me of For Whom the Bell Tolls. It reminds me of Eric Newby, who's, who wrote a great sort of escape through the mountain story in the Second World War called Love and War in the Apennines. This is boy's own grim heroism, you know, sun, heat, fly, stench, dirt, danger, border guards. You know, it, it, it's all the old thriller elements. We're not going to be here for very long, but while we're here, boy, do we really, really feel it. Right. Jack now asks if he can take off the bearskin. No, says Stephen, even though this path is only little traveled, it's a smuggler's path, there are still patrols out looking for fugitives. It's dangerous because there are French patrols and they might shoot Jack just for walking upright like a man. And the smugglers might do the same for looking like a bear. You can reason with a smuggler, maybe but you certainly can't reason your way around a patrol. So steering clear of both of those sets of people is the right strategy. They climb up and up. They're in the moonlight now. They're single file on this narrow path. And again, Mike, this is something that I hadn't noticed on my first reading, and it's really startling to read it now. Something like hatred glowed around Jack's stomach. So he's reflecting on Stephen and thinking something that is quite closely akin to hatred. I mean, you kind of wonder why. So here it goes. Stephen, he knows, has been carrying all their gear in a pack. It's 50 or 60 pounds. Stephen's been carrying it for the whole time, never once murmuring as these bloody welts form on Stephen's back from the weight transmitted by the straps. But the unwavering determination of Stephen's dim form up there in front of him, always moving on, steady, always too fast, never pausing. And what Jack sees as the impossibility of keeping up, of forcing himself another hundred yards, and the equal impossibility of calling for a rest, drowned his reason, leaving only the dull fire of resentment. 
So, he, he'd have every reason to start to resent Stephen's secret life as a spy and as a maybe a Spanish national with with his own interests. He'd have every reason to resent Stephen as a rival for the affections of Diana. But here he is resenting Stephen's resourcefulness and stoicism. Yeah. And you know, I think we've, we've talked a little bit. This is this is such a real change, a very different relationship between Stephen and Jack than we've had so far. Yeah. Who's leading? Who knows what to do? Who's better able to deal with the current situation? Who clearly has a moral advantage? <laughs> and, yeah. and I wonder, what is this doing to Jack and to his perception of the Jack-Stephen relationship? And it makes me then wonder what Stephen been thinking all this time. You know, just last chapter, he's found Jack with Diana multiple times. He's cruelly wounded by Diana specifically. She really poked him with Jack at least once. He had decided to break off with both of them to essentially save himself. And then when Jack's in dire peril, instead of leaving, he humiliates himself again, goes to find the two of them together to pull Jack out and then is wheeled back in by Diana one more time after she was so cold to him upon his arrival there. So I'm wondering what all of this is doing to Stephen and to his view of the Stephen slash Jack relationship. Boy, yeah. I mean, O'Brien is really setting this up incredibly well. He, he really is. And it's funny, this has just occurred to me. Let's think about the generation that O'Brien belongs to. He belongs to the generation of Ben that lived and in most cases fought through World War II. And he was part of the what one of the shadowy special operations slash intelligence agencies in the UK. And he was part of the generation of men that formed their bonds, their friendship bonds that lasted their whole lives in these appalling experiences of wartime. And I'm sure that we're meant to believe that this resentment of Jack's towards Stephen because of their different situations in this really, really grueling journey, I'm sure that's meant to be a sign that this is going to stay with Jack. There are pl plenty of men whose friendships were born and formed and broken and killed forever in terrible situations like this, in situations like World War II. And I'm sure that's the thing that we've got in our minds. Maybe that's a little bit why I'm being reminded of writers like Hemingway and, uh, and Newby as well. But it's, it's interesting when you think about the reaction of men that we've seen in the canon so far to situations like this. I'm, I'm recalling to mind Dylan. Yeah. What does Dylan do when he has this kind of a level of frustration like Jack is probably feeling now? Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're wondering what's happening with Stephen and Jack's relationship. And Jack is having these thoughts as he stumbles on trying to keep up with Stephen until Stephen comes to an abrupt stop. Jack stumbles into him. Stephen grabs him by the skin and guides him into the shadow of this tree that's fallen down. They hear a patrol close by, so they stay silent until the patrol has gone past. Stephen pulls Jack back onto the path again. And Jack is, it, it seems at first like Jack is just back into the same old rhythm. Is this climb, he thinks, going to go on forever? But the landscape starts to change. The beech trees give way to pines. The pine needles start to sting Jack's feet, and that enters his consciousness. Endless pines, endless mountains, endless pain, I think this all means. Mm. Stephen stops to try and recall where they are on the path. And there's this almost kind of surreal moment as Jack pauses, closes his eyes and sees that the sky is lightning ahead of them. No more pines now. The terrain is opening up. There are stunted bushes and they're on the edge of a forest looking down at open turf. Mm. Jack now 
sees movement. He hasn't seen anything except pain in the inside of a bear suit and his friend's back for, for days, it seems. But now he's aware of the environment. He sees movement. He thinks it's a dog. He thinks, well, maybe this is the end. Maybe this is the patrol coming for him with dogs. He leans over to Stephen and quietly asks, just with the word, dog? Stephen takes Jack's head, whispers into the hairy ear of the bear suit, a young female wolf. And first of all, I'm thinking this is a very odd time for Stephen Maturin to be particular about a species, but it has some importance. Stephen waits, looking all around for a while, before they walk out to a monument with a red-painted cross. He turns round and tells Jack, Welcome to my land. You're in Spain. That is my house below, he says. We are at home. Come and let me get your head off. Now you can breathe, poor friend. And it's, it's a brilliant moment, just like that. They're safe. He says Jack can wash and can take off the skin down by the two streams. And we, we don't get set free from the grime and the grimness of the journey quite yet, do we, Mike? No, no. I did want to pause for a second because this is one of these lines that I remember just went right through my heart when I read it the first time. It says, that is my house below. We are at home. Yeah, and I thought, man, with all this tension between these two guys, with all this stuff going on, with all that's happened, there's still there's still this nugget here down yeah. in. But, but you're right. So 2,000 feet below... O'Brien tells us Jack sees Spanish Catalonia spreading out before him in the morning light. And there's a high towered castle just below them on a jutting rock. He looks out towards the sea at the Bay of Rosas. And the text says, home, water, and now the hot wind smelt of salt. So we got a little bit of Stephen's home and Jack is home. You know, we got the sea, we've got the salt here. Ah, well, Jack kind of returns to civilization and and, and is thinking, you know, I, I've, I've got to be kind of myself again. He, he remarks to say that he's happy to see that Stephen is pleased with his wolf and says, you know, I, I trust they're quite rare. And Stephen says, no, no, we have so many of them. We can't leave the sheep out alone at night. But that he, Stephen, was really glad to see her because that meant they were alone. So the fact that there's a female wolf out here, young female wolf means, yeah, there's probably nobody around us. But he wants them to hurry down to the spring in case there's a chance cross patrol that comes by. And uh, I love this description. The, the relief, tempered with horror, <laughs> of, of Jack getting the chance to cool off and wash in the spring. He wallows in the cold water of the spring. There's a really poetically horrible description of Jack as he kind of lies in the water here. His body is bleached white where it's not been bitten and rasped. His colorless face, it says, puffy, sweat-swollen, corpse-like, a tangled yellow beard covering his mouth. His eyes were red and pustulant, but there was life in them. Brilliant delight blazing through the physical distress. Oh, fantastic. There's there's a nice memory of Jack Aubrey that I think I'd like to hang on to. Brilliant delight blazing through the physical distress. Now that he's got the bearskin off, Stephen can notice that Jack has lost three to four stone. And even for a guy who was heavy set to begin with, that's a lot. That's 56 pounds. Jack says that nine parts of the weight he's lost is in the vile 
bearskin. He kicks it, he curses it. He says, we do need to take our papers out of it because right after that, we're going to light the stinking thing on fire. Stephen says, no, 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 we might need it again. We're going to roll it up and put it under a bush. Stephen says, we'll send for it. We'll get, we'll get a servant to come out and pick this stinking wreck up. Jack, can I think, can hardly bear to ask the next question. Is the house a great way off? Why, no, said Stephen, pointing to the castle. It's just there below us, a thousand feet or so, to the right of the white scar, the marble quarry. Though I'm afraid it will take us an hour to get there, an hour to breakfast. Is that castle yours, Stephen? It is, and this is my sheep walk. What is more, he said, looking sharply at the cowpats, I believe those French dogs from Laval have been sending their cattle over to eat my grass. End of chapter four. <laughs> wow. Wow. Oh, gosh. And, and I, you know, leave it to O'Brien after that arduous journey to, to put us on a, a smile. Jack is back to being Jack. Stephen is back to being Stephen, at least for a moment. Yes. I mean, Stephen didn't turn out to be ready to take advantage of Jack and betray him or anything. So maybe Jack's darkest fears about Stephen's role weren't realized. But we've still had this big uh, revelation, I guess you could say, about Stephen's role as an intelligence agent that hasn't gone away. That's part of Stephen's character now and his ability to be ruthless and determined and his ability to operate at the highest levels of intelligence. You know, we, we can't take any of that back. That's baked into Stephen's character now. And the experience that he and Jack have shared, I think, is, is, is baked into their story now as well. I think that, you know, we talked a little bit already about the bear story and everything. I was thinking to myself, I thought, so did anybody ever see this coming? No. You know, in the first <laughs> reading of this, I thought, well, if you are, I, I, I'd have to you know, wonder about your truthfulness. But maybe, who knows? Anyways, I do really appreciate that as in the midst of this really tough and arduous journey with all this tension between our heroes, that the bear does provide a little bit of humor, just like this little touch of humor at the end, yeah. which is something that O'Brien does so well. And I was so glad of it. it, it yeah, I mean, it, it's not very relevant, but it made me wonder about the process of O'Brien inventing this particular right. arc. So, and I was kind of wondering whether he knew he needed to write this story of this really arduous transit across land and he knew it was going to have some impact on the characters and he knew it was going to be a bit brutal and a bit icky and I wonder I can almost imagine him reaching for something you know what's some light relief that I can put at the beginning of this journey and he must have come across an article maybe about the, the bear suit thing and I, what a brilliant coincidence that that happened yeah and and what a brilliant way as you were saying earlier Ian to give us a chance to get into the mind of Jack Aubrey further to yeah. give us a chance to see this relationship change so incredibly to more fully realize Stephen as, as a full character here. In addition to those little things that O'Brien always does, you know, peppering the story with this little subtle foreshadowing, these Easter eggs that, you know, reinforce the plot or point us forward. The mentioning of the Phoebe, talking about Christy Pellier as a bear-like man. You know, he always, he always drops these little things ahead of time here. So, gosh, the whole chapter, though, really a, a lot of stunning kind of, ooh, wow, wow. What do yeah. we find here? 
some some big revelations. We we got all these revelations about Stephen's intelligence character, as we've just said. But interestingly, in the context of a conversation with Christy Pallier, who himself appears to have a job related to French naval intelligence, and he hates it, and he hates the low level of kind of intrigue and nastiness that he has to work at. He's been looking through a file of death sentences and says, oh, maybe they will escape unshot. And that seems like a kind of flippant, offhand remark. He's got his own concerns about how his government treats suspects, and he's meant to be suspicious and cynical, but even he is perfectly happy to take Jack Aubrey at, at his word yeah. that with this claim that Jack's friend, Stephen Matchman, could in no life be a spy. He's very, very obviously a, a, a liberally ornithologist. And meanwhile, his own surgeon is passing along intelligence to Maturin because he, the surgeon, Dr. Ramis, sympathizes with Catalan independence. So Jack and Stephen are not the only ones in the midst of a bit of a tug of loyalties and these kind of very conflicting demands. It put Stephen and Jack in danger anyhow, but it also put Christy Pallier in a position to just about warn them about the danger that they were in and get them to protect themselves from all the other intelligence agencies. Yeah. And, and, and I love when Jack passed this along to Stephen, I thought, oh, thank goodness, Stephen yeah. will know what to make of this, even though he kind of poo-poo's it to Jack. He's, yeah, he got it, I think. And, you know, we talked last time about this other debate that often happens with readers about, so was Stephen a spy in the first novel? Yeah. You know, was this something O'Brien had set up? And we've said that, you know, we, we didn't see any evidence of it there. Although we now know that sometime between then and now, this relationship between Stephen and Dr. Ramos has developed an important intelligence component. So did that happen in Master and Commander? Was Stephen an intelligence agent? Perhaps they merely discovered their mutual interest in Catalan independence and then their ongoing scientific correspondence, and they were always bouncing ideas off of each other, kind of grew. And they, as Stephen's interests were pursued, whenever he first kind of got uh, acquainted with that initial black coat that we saw in the beginning of this book, yeah. you know, maybe that also worked its way into working with Ramus further. So sometime between Master and Commander and Post-Captain, I think is all we can say, but yeah. fascinating about how O'Brien has built that in and built a little bit of retrospective continuity to, to making that happen here. And interestingly, he makes Stephen both a little bit more like Jack Aubrey, like he's, he's aligned with the pursuit of the war, if you like, against Napoleon. Right. But he's also even more unlike Jack Aubrey in that he's not simply a sort of genteel fellow wandering around the Mediterranean. He has this dark purpose and these dark skills and capabilities, which are things that Jack can can't, really can't encompass. And that's been going to be a big part of their characters and their relationship all the way through the rest of the canon here. Yeah, I really think, as you point out, if Jack had known that Stephen was intelligent, that that conversation with Cushé Pellier would not have gone well. No. I don't think Jack's the kind of guy who could fake all that. Could not have kept a straight face. Yeah. Absolutely but, right. You know, on the flip side, watching Stephen play the bear leader, oh my God. Yeah. It's just clearly he was into that role. There were no giveaways for me at that point, mm -hmm. seeing how he talked and acted and everything, that this had anything to do with our heroes. So I love that, a tool that could be very helpful in Stephen's intelligence arsenal, if you will. Yeah. And he can play the flute and he can do accents as well. Right. And, yeah. right. <laughs> right. <A> hornpipe. <laughs> oh, yeah. gosh. Well, 
Stephen and Jack have been through so much together these last several chapters. They both yeah. suffered a great deal. Stephen, as we've said repeatedly, has plenty of reasons to walk away from Jack to be quite upset with Jack. Jack has seen his role with Stephen reversed. He realizes, as we said, there's much more to Stephen than he ever knew before. He resents or at least resented his dependence on him in this chapter. Yeah, They've both been in danger. They both have been interdependent in getting away with this caper once they started it together. Although I guess Stephen perhaps could have walked away easier than Jack could. And, and I start wondering... What's going to happen now that the jeopardy has eased up a little bit? They had to rely on each other. Now, what happens as they go forward from here? I don't know. Now, Mike, it it appears that they may be safe. I mean, they could be safe in Stephen's homeland for a long time. We could have a whole series of novels of these two guys now exploring life ashore in Catalonia with the sheep and the wolves maybe, but I have a feeling that we're going to get called back to the sea and get called back to war at some point quite soon. Are they going to be at ease with each other? Like, are they going to be able to be the same two friends playing Boccherini in the uh, in the great cabin of the next warship? I, I don't think we can count on that, especially not with what's going on ashore with the triangle between Stephen and Diana and Jack especially not with Jack's continuing problems at home. He's got the debts and the court cases. He's got his own entanglement with Sophie to take care of, not to mention the possibility that the war is going to evolve further, I guess. Spain could well come in on France's side at any moment. And if you know anything about the revolutionary and the Napoleonic Wars, you you won't be surprised to hear us speculating about that. Mike, there's a huge amount to look into we've learned a huge amount but we're only four chapters in to a 14 chapter book there's just one way to find out what do you say next week to a little bit more patrick o'brien i should like that of all things hard ruthlessness, an unexpected matron, and Jack was quite out of his depth. Hmm.